Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Michelle Smith of Brooklyn Fair Restaurant joins us today. Hello, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? Great to see you. It's great to be here. Thank you. So you have a pretty exciting role. You're the wine and service director for a three-star Michelin restaurant that a lot of people consider to be one of the greats in America. And let's talk a little bit about how you got there. Um, I When I started there, it was in uh, the second year that the restaurant was open. So it had already been opened and running um, a little bit differently. But I came on in, say, June of 2010. Uh, and at the time, it was growing. So it was previously a 12-seat restaurant. And then it was it, it was going to grow into an 18-seat restaurant. So the, a small expansion. But, but in that case, they needed... They being the owners, uh, Cesar Ramirez, the chef, and Mo, they needed somebody to help with service because previous to that, Cesar was doing everything. So he would cook, he'd put the food down, he had somebody to do the markings, but it was a really simple operation. It was, it was three people. Uh, Cesar, one chef de partie, one guy who would help him cook and do the markings, and then the dishwasher. And that's how they rolled for a year. Because it is essentially just a kitchen space with a it little is. bit of counter seating. You're you're in the kitchen. There's no barrier. You're you're sitting at a table, uh, and the chefs are right in front of you. And originally, they hired you with the idea that you would build a wine list kind of right away. And then, how did that all work out? Um, well, I, I, the idea was yes that I would start the wine program right away. They had applied for a liquor license at the same time that they were planning this expansion, so I was hired to do that, uh, and. Then we waited an extraordinarily long time for the liquor license to go through. And at that time, I was I was using that time to develop the wine list, but we couldn't purchase anything. There was no, uh, there was no purchasing. We didn't have the license at the time. So I would uh, still set up appointments with reps and build relationships in that point. So I had people coming for a year and tasting me on wines just with the promise that at one point, I would say, I promise I will purchase if it's available at that time. You know, wine is, especially what I was looking to purchase is in small quantity. These are allocated wines. They be purchased in bottles. You don't, you don't purchase in cases. So I'm um, just hoping that at that time when the liquor license went through, whenever that would be, uh, that those would still be available to put on the list. 
So when the liquor license finally came through, were you able to pretty much put together the list like right away because you'd been and waiting all that not time? Not exactly. That's not exactly how it works. No, not at all. I think for the first four months that the that the program was in place, I woke up every single night in the middle of the night, like in a panic, like, oh my God, I have no red wine. This is this is, you know, terrible. I don't know. It just was not where I wanted it to be at all. And that was very clear. And somebody else would look at it and maybe think like, well, this is a very decent list or, but it tortured me. Because it was, it's pretty extensive today when you look at it. Now, yeah. And it's a a 25 page list and that's all it will, it's, that's the, the length that I always want it to be. I want it to be a short focused list. Uh, I don't need it to be expansive and, and certainly we're, we're working in a kitchen. I don't have, I don't have space to put these bottles because you do have them on the wall kind of lined up. I do, yeah. There is some storage space, and there will be a little bit more in the future. But if I need a bottle and and it's in the, I don't have it upstairs, I need to exit the restaurant, run down the block, Skirmerhorn Street, as you know, amazing as it is. I need to run down the block. Very scenic. Go. <laughs> Incredibly. And every day, it's amazing. Uh, run down the block, run down into the cellar, grab the bottle, and just run back. Because it wasn't awesome. really designed at first to be so much a restaurant as, as a prep kitchen for the grocery store that it is inside. Exactly. It wasn't built. It was never built to be what it is today. It was a slow uh, process of building it, a, a process, just a lot of hard work, dedication. And it's just as things were, there was never a, there was never a, a, a meeting amongst investors talking about what is the concept of this restaurant. It was strictly Cesar and Mo putting uh, together these very small dinners at a time when you couldn't open a great restaurant. It was 2008 when they were developing this. In New York, everybody remembers 2008 was very difficult. So they were putting together a restaurant. They didn't have a lot of funds. There aren't investors. It's it's one investor. There's one person putting his money into this thing. I really believe in it. So they would host these small dinners for maybe $75 a, a couple nights a week, and Cesar would put the food out. And then it was a, people caught on to it. it. It was all by word of mouth. And, and the whole idea was that they were just always going to uh, use product that they believed in. So there was no profit coming into the restaurant to this day. It's not, it's not what it's about. Essentially, we were funded by the market. So. And it, how have the accolades kind of accrued over time? Because now it's uh, really thought of as one of the top restaurants in New York. What was it like when you first started there? What was the general vibe around the restaurant? Well, uh, they um, that first year they were able to build. Before I was there, the first year uh, they were able to build um, a small following, and there was a lot of help with some writers, and they were able to book the restaurant consistently. It was the twelve seats at the time, so it was always booked sometimes three months in advance, and and this was without doing any public relations, nothing. Uh, and then when I started, that had kind of slowed a little bit. The press kind of had kind of worn off, and uh, we would fill the restaurant. It'd be 18 seats. Sometimes we weren't filling the restaurant that much. It was the and and it really was linked to the fact that we weren't doing any press, never. But that was intentional. That was that was always the idea that that money, instead of putting it into public relations, would go into the product. So then that's what people know. They know by taste. If you're if it's the real deal, you know it. There's no, you could have a three-star mission restaurant, but if you eat there, you don't believe in the food, then, you know, is it authentic? Yeah. This whole idea was built on the idea of authenticity and uh, it was slowly moving. It was slowly moving. Uh, and then I would say probably about 
three or four months into it, then we received the two Michelin stars. But that was before anything. So uh, there was no Michelin rating previous to that. There was no New York Times at the time. Uh, there was nothing. I don't even think New York Magazine had reviewed us yet. And that kind of like was a fairly big bang in the community of like, whoa, what's going on out there yeah, if I haven't fantastic. seen it? Yeah, no one saw it coming. You know, even uh, so Jean-Luc Noray, the previous uh, director for Michelin, uh, he had come in just a couple nights before. So we knew that um, he, we were on his radar, but never, there was never in a million years would it even be a thought that there would be a Michelin star because that's not what it, it was. Nobody was working towards that. That wasn't the goal. The goal was strictly to put out amazing product the way Cesar wanted to do it. And a lot of restaurants that work at the three-star level do have pretty sophisticated PR machines, but you guys didn't even really have a dedicated reservationist for no. a long time. So no. if I were to call, where might that have called been handled and who might have been talking to me on the phone for yes, a reservation? This is pretty awesome. Uh, if you were a regular guest just calling in to say, hey, uh, can I eat there on Thursday night? You would be dialing into... Uh, our owner, Mo, his wife's Heidi's personal cell phone. So whether you're calling her or her mother is calling her, uh, it doesn't matter. That's her personal cell phone. So people were calling her at like 3 in the morning, asked for a reservation. She would get up and answer, okay, you know, and making it. And, and then after uh, after the two-star Michelin hit, then she's like ready to jump off the bridge. She's like, this is just crazy. Please please, can we get a reservationist? So then we brought somebody on, and then she sort of developed a system of doing it six weeks out because before that, it wasn't uh, that wasn't the case. Were there any, like, funny moments where she's, like, at Disneyland on the roller coaster and the phone <laughs> rings and she picks it up and it's like, yeah. I'm sure. If anyone who's had the, the, uh, the luck to chat with Heidi knows how she is pretty awesome. She's a little here and there, but she's hilarious. She doesn't know who people are. So if you have like a chef calling in, uh, you know, even if you're Michelle Trago, uh, she doesn't know who he is. So everybody's treated the same. So I'm sure a lot of people had some pretty uh, amazing experiences with trying to book at the restaurant. So you're like, John Luc Nare, how many R's are in that? <laughs> like that kind of thing? She didn't know. She's like, oh, this is a Michelin guy. So how did you find yourself uh, working there? What, what, what was the sequence of events that led you to that take led, that job? Uh, let's see. Uh, how did I even know about the restaurant? Yeah, because uh, it was still kind of underground. It was time. totally underground. I had a lot of my friends, obviously, that are in the industry, and um, this is what we do. We eat and we drink. And and I had a lot of people, uh, specifically Jonathan Schwartz, who's at Skernick. Oh, yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, dear friend. So he... Uh, told me about it. He said, wow, he's like, this place in Brooklyn, like, it's downtown, and he'll he'll go anywhere to eat. He'll literally fly anywhere, go wherever he needs to, but he's like, oh, this place in downtown Skirmahorn Street. Uh, Cesar Ramirez, previously of Boulay, is cooking there. He's doing these small dinners. He's like, you can't believe it. You can get, like, langoustines, everything on the meal, and it's less than 100 bucks. Like, this is crazy. Like, you have got to go, but it's hard to book it. At that time, it was... It was difficult to book. Um, so he told me about it. And then another friend uh, at Skernick had said, look, they're looking for a wine buyer, somebody to, someone as like a service and, and to put together a wine list. Because previously it had been kind of like BYOB, like people would bring their own bottles. It was BYOB until just last January. So people were always bringing their own wines when they, uh, they would even serve themselves everything. And that was until, even until last year, everybody was serving themselves. 
And when you met Cesar, how did that go down? I mean, what was, was your introduction? <laughs> he's funny. He's a he's a character. So he had called me. I sent in my resume, uh, and he called me right away. And, well, within like a day or two, which is, and then left a message, but I wasn't able to pick up. So within three minutes, he called me back and left another message. And he said, hey, look, I just called you. You didn't pick up your phone. I'm trying to get a hold of you. Please call me back. I'm like, no problem. Okay. So uh, I called him back and then... We chatted a little bit, and I hadn't known him at all. I did not know Cesar. I've never met him. Uh, honestly, I never even ate a boule. Uh, but but he uh, asked me to come in, so I met him in, on this, in this prep kitchen on Skirmerhorn Street. And I walked in, and at the time, it, it, it was. They were just using it as a prep kitchen. I couldn't even understand in my mind how at night this turned into a restaurant. I didn't get it, but we chatted for a while. I, he told me what he was looking for. We talked probably for about three hours. And really? Somehow, That's a pretty long first interview. <laughs> That's Cesar. <laughs> he just kept talking and, and we were going back and forth. Because and I've actually like, never heard him talk and I had dinner there. Do you know what I mean? Really? Like, I think he comes and goes. Like, uh, yeah, he'll he, chime in. Uh, you know, when, he, when he has something to say, he's going to say it and he, he's going to talk about it. And if he has nothing to say, he he's not. But yeah, you can get you can get in a conversation for a couple hours sometimes you know, with him, and that's what we did. We chatted and and went back and forth, and and uh, he said, "Okay, great. Will you come in for dinner?" And that's what I did. I I followed it up. At the time, it was BYO. I came in by myself. I sat at the table, and it was just all these other groups of people. And it was funny. And people were just walking in with like. Five bottles of wine, magnums, everything between a party of two. I'm like, what are these people drinking? And uh, it, was, it was a fish restaurant even at the time. It was a lot of sashimi, and it's it's changed, and the menu's been tweaked. And how is uh, the menu now? What's it like now? Hmm. The menu is uh, is based on Japanese product, uh, and as I was saying earlier, the whole idea is to source the best products from all around the world, wherever wherever they may be. It's always a pursuit of uh, uh, high quality. Yeah. These these even if you look at Japanese fish, you be, you find some are you know some are better than others. And what's it like working with Cesar just day to day? I mean, what's his personality like in that in that fairly confined space? Cesar is uh, entertaining. Uh, you know, we've grown now. We work together. We spend seventy five hours a week together, six days a week. Uh, I talk to him on Sundays when I'm not at work. You know, we've grown very very close. And, uh, but it, it wasn't always that way. You know, we joke about it now, but it was, in the beginning, it was, a, for us, it was a struggle to get along. We're very, very strong personalities. We have very strong views about how things should be done. And we'll work hard to put those into place. And sometimes he and I were working against each other. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he fired me at least five times while I was in the center working service. And I just said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm stuck. <laughs> there's not really a way to get out of here. Yeah, exactly. There's no real way to get out of there. I really can't go right now. I'm sorry. I'm not leaving. So, and over that time, you know, and he saw my dedication, and and we really believed in something. And uh, at the time, we, we were working together, and all these accolades were coming, and in recognition of achievement, and, and we grew together in that way, and that 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 won't change. But but to say we get along all the time. Oh, that'd be boring. Who wants to get along all the time? Well, and what would you say the style of his cuisine is? I mean, uh, you said inflected by Japan and with uh, emphasis on ingredients, but what absolutely. what yeah. makes a plate for him a little different than somebody else? 
Um, well, let's see. So it's about 25 courses that yeah. you have per evening. It changes all the time. The menu changes from day to day. It will never be exactly the same. It's it does change every day. Every single day. It's based on whatever product is available at the time. Uh, so it will start with sashimi courses. And that's what I was saying with the Japanese fish sourcing uh, these different kinds of fish, like red trumpet fish, dragon fish, things that you don't see all the time. Uh, but that are good. They have to taste good, ultimately. And then, so starting with sashimi, and then it progresses into, like, cooked fish courses uh, in richer styles. And, uh, but it's fish most of the time. And it may be one meat course, but uh, but it's a fish restaurant. And how are you going about pairing that with wine? What's on your mind when you put together the list? Uh, so the the list, as I was saying earlier, is 25 courses, or 25, uh, sorry, pages. It's a 25-page list that is meant to be a pairing for the food. So every single bottle that you pull from it, that I pull from it, is meant to pair at some point in the menu. So it's a progression. There's a heavy emphasis on on, uh, classic wine regions. I try to uh, always, always have single vineyard wines, if possible, and if they're expressive and good. Uh, And it's probably about 75% white wine. Because so. of the fish emphasis? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you, you start with something, you see how it unfolds. I like to drink things side by side. I like to encourage people to uh, enjoy the the menu with a few tastes of wine side by side. But wine pairings, I can't say I necessarily um, believe in them. Uh, to, to identify a perfect pairing per course is not part of my, uh, it's not part of my philosophy. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it. Do you feel that the customer expectations have changed uh, as the accolades have rolled in for the restaurant? Are yeah, people... absolutely. Is it and the and the idea? So you, <laughs> so after you've made your reservation, it's six weeks from that date. So within those six weeks, the guest is thinking, you know, is waiting for it, waiting for it. So by the time they arrive, and you'll see it sometimes on their faces, they'll be like, "This better be real good. This better be very good," because. Uh, you know, it wasn't easy to get here, but they committed to to the process of come, to be able to come in. And you find that the clientele has shifted towards more like super gastronomes, or what's happened in the uh, time well, that you've been there? In people that are willing to travel, travel into Brooklyn, uh, people who are really into food. Yeah, we're we're extremely lucky with the guests. I have to say, ninety eight percent of our guests are are people who just love food, love wine, love new experiences, and you can't ask for more than that. You know, they're they're not there to be uh, at a restaurant that's hard to get into. That's, I mean, I'm sure some people do, but but for the most part, yeah, people are there because they really want to be. It's the, amazing. The room is fairly simple, but in terms of the plate, I, I th- it seemed like there was a lot of thought given to presentation, just in tableware and different plates used at different times for different courses. Um, yes. Uh, all the plates are, nothing will be repeat. So say that you're being served 28 courses, then each plate is going to be different from one of those. So there's no, uh, you're never seeing the same thing. It's exciting. And all the plates are picked by Cesar. He's an, a great eye for it. Uh, uh, China fetish, you say, like he, he, we have a room downstairs that's just dedicated. That's where we store the China. It's a, it's an entire room just for China. It's insane. Not to mention what we store upstairs, but, and, and then the components on the dish. So you'll have something that's very simple. You'll have, uh, 
you'll have uh, a piece of sashimi, uh, whatever it may be, and then a sauce, a couple other components, but it's a very clean presentation. It's not overly done. It's it's simplified, but there's always certain components to it that are that are important. Just like with wine, you have to have certain components and then they all come together. So how did it change your view of what fine dining can be to come from per se, where you had worked previously to a more scaled down environment like Brooklyn Fair? What 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 do you take as as the poles of fine dining or what it can be, or did it change your idea of what was possible? Uh, no, I think everybody should determine on their own what they believe it to be, and that's the time that we're in. And like I said, we never set out to be a three-star Michelin restaurant. We we strictly just based it on product. We, we just did it the way that we wanted to do it. We didn't compromise at any point, put a lot of hard work and, and dedication, commitment into this and really believed in it and just committed to that idea of authenticity and that's it and, and, and just being the real deal. And we did that without a wine list uh, and certainly not everybody was happy about that. That's understood. But, you know, that's that, that was the case. Now we have wine and it's even better. So how did you get there originally? You, you went to school at Pace. Yes, yes. I uh, So I moved to, I'm from Connecticut. I moved to New York in 2000. And then in, uh, and I stayed, I started at Pace University. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I just knew I wanted to live in Manhattan. That was my entire goal in life. And then I figured I'll figure it out after that. So there I was. I was living in Manhattan. Fantastic. And then 2001, I moved to downtown Brooklyn, uh, continued to go to school at Pace. And then uh, we, and then 2000, September 11th, 2001, everything was there. It was right in front of me. So uh, it, it had an impact on me, I'll say. It had a large impact. I went to school. I decided hey, man, what's going on in the world? I got to figure this out. Like, what is going on? So I declared my major international relations, started started studying politics, and then it came, uh, I got an opportunity where I was able to travel extensively. So I took it, of course, and this was my opportunity to figure out what was going on out there. Because it seemed like a weirdly contentious world suddenly with 9-11 happening? Well, maybe without even knowing it or realizing it, but I was in the middle of it, uh, it was my school was shut down for quite a while because it's only a couple blocks away. Uh, and, you know, the, the World Trade Center was my view from my bedroom window before that, you know. So, so things were different. Things changed. And I, and I had an opportunity to travel. So, of course, I'm going to take that. Where did you go? I, uh, I, I went, I started in Asia and uh, Japan. That was a, a pretty amazing experience, something totally different than I had ever seen before. And even previous to that, I I really will say that I didn't uh, have a large, uh, I wasn't really looking to travel through Asia, but once I was, I fell in love with it. It's just insane. Then uh, from there. Did you connect with Cesar on that later? Was that something you guys kind of had in common? Yeah, it was a topic of conversation. He has traveled also like extensively throughout Japan, and that had a large impact on him. And later in his life, he came back, and his his background before that was strictly uh, uh, French cooking. And then from there, he's like, "Wow, this whole philosophy of you know ingredients and and is intriguing to him as well." Um, so yeah, it was it was something that we could talk about definitely. Uh, from there, I just traveled around to throughout Asia, uh, Vietnam. That was a huge impact. And throughout these times too, it was uh, it was ability to go and and eat and 
and drink. And even I think it applies to this day that even if you can't relate to anyone else on any other level, you always have food and drink. And, and if you can get someone to commit to that, you can get them to commit to conversation. And, uh, and this is how ideas flow. And this is this is how you learn. And, and uh, I believe that to this day. You know, I love to throw dinners. I love to just get everyone together. I'll invite like 20 people and just say, hey, bring your own wine. Let's get together. Let's talk. Let's chat. Let's drink. Let's eat. Uh, I, I truly believe in it. But so you travel around the world and you're, you're eating what they're making and, and you're learning, you're picking it up. And I can't say that I learned, uh, you know, why 2011, sorry, 2001 happened. Uh, no, I still don't know. But uh, but I picked up so many experiences along the way. And and when you're there, you you eat what they eat. You drink what they drink. When you're when you're in India, uh, actually, when you're in India, you drink whiskey. But uh, if you're in South, uh, you know, South Africa, you drink wine. If you're in Brazil, you drink caipirinhas. You know. Did you and, ever experience more hostility as an American than you were expecting on the travels? Sure, sure. And by people my age. So not necessarily. In Asia, everything was fine. Uh, I ended up in Kenya, and and there there was a little bit of hostility. I remember, actually, it came up for me looking for food. I uh, I was walking in Mombasa, a town in Kenya, and I saw this young guy. He was my age, and he he was with his girlfriend, or with a girl, I don't know. And they were sitting by themselves, and I just asked, like, oh, you know, pardon me. I said, do you know where there's a restaurant around here? I could get something to eat. And then he said, oh, you're American. Where are you from? I said, well, I'm from New York. I'm from New York. Uh, and then from there, he, his tone kind of changed. And and he uh, and then he started asking me, like, oh, so you enjoy Osama bin Laden? I'm like, wait a minute. I just wanted to, like, find a restaurant to eat. But it impacted me because he was so young. He was my age. And we couldn't relate on any level. You know, so I picked up on that and and then, I don't know. But have you found that that experience kind of helped you dealing with a multitude of guests from around the world later on? Yeah, absolutely. And it was an experience I'll, I'll always take with me. You know, you have to try to relate to people uh, in the way that they want to be related to. Not everyone's going to relate to you. And I'm cool with that. Like, I'm not everyone's cup of tea and, you know, I'm totally cool with that. But I... You're not everyone's uh, cup of cha. Yeah, try, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you roll back Even to New York and, and you take up a job in a restaurant? Yeah, uh, so finally I returned to New York after having some pretty cool experiences. Uh, and then I needed to pay for my school. It was continuing to go, so I had to pay for it. So I uh, worked in restaurants, naturally. And from there, I uh, I was tasting wine. Uh, I had... I had a, uh, somebody was coming in and, and tasting us on things and giving me some sort of education. I thought like, wow, there's something here. Like Someone was giving this? seminars? Yeah, informal seminars, just tasting, educating. Uh, and so, and then, and then from there, I, I wanted to learn more and I was pretty young and I, you know, I needed to learn a lot. So I applied at Thomas Keller's Per Se in New York. How did you uh, come across that name? Why did you end it oh, up Thomas, there? Uh, the, the French Laundry Cookbook, which was back in the day and still continues to be a pretty, uh, uh, at the time it was kind of revolutionary, I guess. I mean, if you're if you're into food, and I was reading it, and I thought, wow, this Thomas Keller guy, he's like really onto something. Like, wow, what is this? 
uh, so I said, I want to work at uh, his other restaurant here in New York. I wasn't going to move to California. So that's what I did. I, I applied. And they had a great wine program at the time and still do to this day. But they had a program where they were, you know, they would teach classes to you. And it was pretty expensive. They had a, a great wine list. Uh, and that was the Andre Mack era? Yes, yes, yes. Andre was, uh, when I started, Andre was the wine director. And he was the... He was like epitome of suave, you know. He he sharp he broke, dressed man, totally. You know, double Windsor, but he wore it well. This was, you know, he he could pull it out. He had a lot of style. Uh, it's just somebody, uh, you know, somebody that was really cool to have on the floor and to have in the wine department because he was much different than that stereotypical Tom. That very different. That yeah. When when did you look at him and go, that guy's got a a future in comical t shirts? <laughs> I know I have so many of those T-shirts. They're awesome. Um, you know, you never know where people will end up. But so, doing it. did you start out right away in the wine program there, or did you work your way through, or how did it go? No, no, I wanted to. So that's what I was saying when I when I began. I was thinking like, oh, I want to be a sommelier there. I would like to be a sommelier per se. So that's I. That's that was my goal. And then I got there and I realized, hey, I gotta like learn a lot about food too. So, and the, the food is very serious there. And, they have their own language and have their own language the way it's written. Uh, so I focused on food for a while, and then I wanted to work uh, with wine. So I was moved into the wine department as a, a assistant sommelier. And there, it, it's pretty amazing because you're uh, part of the job, aside from all of the cellar work, receiving all the wine, you're doing all of that. You're carrying all the bottles. You're, you're, you know, you're binning everything. And it's a lot of... The, the dirty work that's so necessary and, and priceless. But uh, and also, uh, you're able to taste everything. I was able to taste everything. 98% of the bottles that went out, it was my job to grab them from the cellar, open them, and taste it. So I tasted everything uh, you can think of uh, from California, a lot, of, a lot of California wine on the list, a lot of Bordeaux, uh, a lot of old Burgundy, Riesling, and you name it. It was the... The full lineup, and that was really fortunate for that. And it's not that I liked everything; everything wasn't to my taste. But I had a knowledge now of what those things tasted like. And this was during the Jonathan Benno era as chef de cuisine. Yes, yes. Jonathan was the uh, also from Connecticut. Oh, really? Yeah, that was always our line. Not bad for a kid from Connecticut. Did you guys get along well? What was he like to work with? He's intense. He's a very intense individual. We did get along very well, um, but he challenged me also. You know, it was not it was not that you were going to walk into this and and anything was handed to you. You had to work for everything, every every bit of uh, respect from the kitchen, from from your fellow employees. You had to work for it. And that's, I believe in that. And speaking about those fellow employees, is that where Jonathan Schwartz and you first met? No, no, no. Jonathan actually, uh, he was leaving just as I was coming in. So I think we might have crossed paths for like two days. Mm -hmm. But um, no, no, no. We, we became friends after. When after. he was at Skarnik with these. Yeah, he, yes, yes. He left uh, per se to work for the Cherry Thieves portfolio. How lucky is he? Awesome. And, and he... Uh, and that's, we just have a lot of mutual friends from per se. And then we just started uh, to hang out and now he's a dear friend. And was Raj from Danielle now? Was he at per se at that <laughs> sure. time, Raj Vedia? Yes, yes. Raj and I worked together as a, as a team. We were, we were a, a force, I would say. And, uh, and Raj was really important and he, he's always been, uh, had a focus on wine and 
I learned a lot from him, I'll say. And I still do. I continue to learn a lot from him. He's, he uh, is very good at what he does. What was he like at that time as, as a captain? <laughs> uh, he, he would do things his own way. He would do everything his own way. Uh, but he's a very caring person. You know, we, we worked well together. How was Raj there? Uh, he would be like, why don't you get the Volnay? Why, just drink Volnay with that. Uh, yeah. You know what should you start with? How about Riesling? <laughs> so his favorite wines in the world, basically, Burgundy and Riesling. Re- yeah, exactly. In a place that, a good pal- yeah. you know, sold a bit of California and Bordeaux. It was too. all California, a ton of California going on on the floor, except for Raj's section. Then it was uh, Riesling all day. And that seems to have kind of carried through to your own list, because I noticed a pretty strong Burgundy focus there. Sure, because it goes with the food consistently. And I like to drink it, and I like to taste it, and I encourage other people to do the same. And do you uh, find that customers are really all about burgundy these days? Um, no. Sometimes no, not at all. you still have to introduce. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It requires conversation, and but if they see that you're passionate about it, and you and you care, and, and, and when you taste it, you realize, oh, this actually does go with the food, then then it's easy. And, um, and the list is built as a pairing. It's built as a wine pairing, so... In, the, in that way, it, uh, Burgundy's a necessity. So you're at Per Se, you're working with Raj and his station. There's a lot of Burgundy open there. What kind of drew you through uh, learning more about Burgundy that you would eventually use on your list at Brooklyn Fair? Um, well, I was admits a lot of California, a lot of Bordeaux. My interest uh, at the time was everywhere. But I had to make my life easier, and there was a lot of burgundy on the list. So I had to figure out a way to get the seller, uh, so to organize the seller so that I could pull bottles on the fly. So somebody's ordering it, and I could say, I know exactly where the bottle is. I'm going to run and grab it really fast and, you know, get it out on the floor, taste it, and give it to the psalm. Uh So what I did was I grabbed Clive Coates. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the actual door. guy or the book? Okay. Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this, this large man with a bow tie comes over like, I grabbed Clive. <laughs> I wish that was an option. That would have been brilliant. Oh, my goodness. Um, one, it seems possible. You know, so, I'm sure he'll come by this Brooklyn Fair one day. <laughs> I hope so. I'm going to have to send him an invite now uh, and drag him down to the cellar uh, down the street on Skirmelhorn. Uh, so anyway, so I was in the, I want to make my life easier. So I grabbed Clive Coates book, uh, which Coat is Door. almost as big and heavy as he is. Cause yes. it's a huge book. Yes. Yes. I love that book. It's like a, it's like an encyclopedia of knowledge. It's insane. So, uh, I organized the cellar from North to South. So I started with Chevrolet and then I learned all of the villages and, and that's how I did it in the cellar. I did it from North to South and I, and I did that and it was uh, that's so, how I like, learned the geography. as you grab something, you're like, yeah, this is south of Maurice on the Yeah, this because it was north south in the Volnay. cellar. You yeah. know, it was just that's one, really smart. It was one bin down. I was strictly trying to make my life easier. That, that was it. And the same idea with, uh, there was a lot of rouleau. Uh, and now I don't think there's a lot of rouleau, but uh, anywhere. But at the time, they had a lot of older vintages and so. And I couldn't understand. I'm like, why? does All these bottles look the same, but... I'm like, but the vineyards are different. I'm like, oh, this is really difficult, you know. Like, I, I keep grabbing the wrong bottle by accident. So you grab Rouleau and you brought him into the cellar, and then yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> like Jean-Marc, uh, <laughs> need your assistance, please. Uh, so that's what I did. I learned the vineyards. I learned, uh, you know, this is Narvo and and this is Perrier. And did and you Jean- bin them out by vineyard? In that, no, it, it was in a. 
I I did it alphabetically actually. That would have been smart, and then I could have I could have did it like on the geography of the the village of Merso. I think the alphabetical thing is probably a little bit easier when you're under the gun. Yeah, you know what I mean. (laughs) I got oh no time to find this bottle. I think the alphabet's probably coming up quicker for you. Like the psalms are like banging on the door on the cellar. Like what are you doing? I'll be right there. So you were kind of working as kind of a seller, sommelier, like you were doing work? I was doing all of the, uh, yes, everything. All the seller work, all of, I didn't, uh, I did everything. I would receive the wine, then I would have to put the wine down in the cellar. Um, did that give you a good base when you then had to build your own huge, list by yourself? Huge. Uh, it was so, it was necessary, everything, even, even putting together like an Excel spreadsheet and, and doing inventory in that way. Yeah. It's priceless information and that was my work and i was very fortunate because it's one thing to know about wine but it's another to be able to actually construct a wine list in a restaurant yeah you have to (laughs) absolutely yeah definitely that's the practical side of it you you have to be able to do this thing so as brooklyn fair evolves where do you see it going in the next few years as as it's you know in in some ways changed a lot at least the outside perception of it has changed a lot in the last two years or so where do you see it uh, going in the future, or has it achieved what it wants to achieve, and will continue that? No, way? we'll never achieve. No, no way. Uh, you know, no, not not with a personality like Caesar. Caesar is the type of individual that will send me a text message at four a.m. talking about changing a plate for the next day, or saying, you know, I really don't like Pedro Jimenez. Why don't we not pour that anymore? And these things, he will always, he's always, always thinking, what is the next step? What else to do? Uh, and I think, and I do truly believe that he's ahead of uh, his time without without even knowing it. I don't. I don't think he ever acknowledges that. He doesn't. He doesn't know that. And certainly, if he said that, he would shy away from it. But uh, I do believe that he has a vision, and he's he always carries through on it. He works very hard uh, to deliver it. And I don't even know what he's thinking half the time. I have no idea, but I uh, I'm, I'm there to help implement it. That's all I'll say. And so you're also opening up a more casual establishment in Manhattan? Yes. Uh, we're, it's a little delayed right now, but we'll say maybe by mid-year, uh, 2013, we're going to open. It's still going to be fine dining. Uh, you know, we don't want to do anything. We, we, we always want to focus on ingredients and so, but it'll be a different concept. It'll be a place where you can go and there will be tables and you can sit with people you know. And uh, there will be more meat on the menu. You could choose from a menu. Uh, the list there, uh, you know, I'm working on the list there now. It's going to be uh, focused on France. It will have a lot of California. I love what's happening in California. The wines are great. I like to drink them. So uh, I think it's important to put that on the list. So it allows you a chance to pursue some of your other wine interests. Yes. Yeah. Outside which is, of. Which is necessary. Imagine, uh, not that I'm complaining, but I taste all the time. Uh, these are the same style of wines, which is great because it's what I enjoy drinking also. But it's really important to me because I work as a one-person department. I'm the only person in the wine department. So it's important to me to have more experience. You know, that's why that's why I like to do BYOB parties with friends. I get to see what they're bringing to the table. Like, what are they drinking? What's new? Like, yeah, It's important to have that community. And what neighborhood is that restaurant going to be in? That will be in uh, Hell's Kitchen. Do you have a name for it yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not Brooklyn Fair. Right, right. It might be, be a little confusing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But you guys wanted to definitely do something in Manhattan. 
And yes, yeah, and that's with our owner too. He's a developer. That's I what see. he does. He'll he goes into underdeveloped neighborhoods and he'll he'll uh, put things into place. Even he's from Brooklyn. He grew up in uh, downtown Brooklyn, and then he that's why he put the market there originally, so that people who lived around there would have some place to go. Yeah, because there's not a lot of grocery or even restaurant venues in that neighborhood that I could see just walking around that went no. beyond like a franchise chains. You know what I mean? Exactly. In the neighborhood needed it at the time. And how does Cesar feel about going back to, to Manhattan? Because I know that he had Bar Blanc and then he was at Boulay before that. So it's kind of a return to the to the island for him. Has he expressed anything to you about what that means for him? Um, no, no, we haven't talked about it. I think with Cesar, he's so busy, he has his hands full with everything that he really just does things in the moment. For anybody who knows him, uh, knows that about him, everything is very in the moment. So even if you had a conversation saying, we are going to do it this way, and then when the moment comes, it's like, just get ready to roll with it because that's how it's going to be. And, and in this case, I don't, I don't really see it being any different. <laughs> it's part of the adventure. It's awesome. Are there other programs or sommeliers in town that have inspired you along the way that you've uh, drawn inspiration from, people that you look to? Yeah, there's a, of course, and I, I try to... Um, I've learned from so many people, and in in New York, we're we're lucky. We have this this like wealth of knowledge. These people are insane. You know, it's it's incredible, and I always try to be surrounded by those people. And uh, what's your favorite drinking story after uh, a few bottles of wine in your career? What what which ones stand out and when? Oh my goodness! Uh, let's see. I don't know. Let's if I maybe if I put it a scope down to this week. Say say we'll say this week. Um, I've had a lot of great wine. I share wine with friends all the time, so you know it's uh, there's a a lot of great wines I've I've tasted and and drank and a lot of bad wine along the way, but I learned from that. Um, but I will say so this week. And uh, we had uh, Laurent Ponceau in as a guest. Nice. Yeah, nice guy. He's hilarious. So he brought over, uh, he brought over, let's say, so in 2010, he started uh, vitifying Montrachet. So the first bottling, 2010. So he brought over now what's about to be on the market. So he said it's a, you know, it's a quantity of 388 bottles that were made. So I don't know how much is coming on the market. Um, but anyway, so he brought the first bottle over so that he could enjoy it at dinner, like amongst his friends. Sounds like a great idea. Sounds fantastic. I'm glad I was there that night. Because um, he already made some nice white anyway that yeah. wasn't Malrachet. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Malouisant and... Uh, really good. Uh, yeah, fantastic. You know, you're talking 100-year-old wine, Aligote. This is it's a cool wine, no matter... It's, it's awesome. It's like a unicorn. It's one of my favorite wines on the list. So... Uh, did he know that you had his wine on the list when he came in? I didn't have a conversation with him, but yeah. I have no. I, it, he came more for the idea of the food. Yeah, yeah. He was there for dinner to have dinner with friends, and he was with his wife, and uh, you know, it's a very. Uh, it, was, it was a dinner. He was just enjoying himself. So he brought this bottle, and he opens it, and it, he has these. Uh, now, after everything has gone down in terms of like counterfeiting, and so he has these new high tech. Uh, I call them high tech. No one else would probably say that, but. Uh, security measures on the bottles. So uh, at the bottom of the bottle is an uh, inscription that says Domaine Ponceau that sticks out of the bottle. Uh, there's these new corks. Have you seen them? The, 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 mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, the, the kind of bullets. 
Yeah. 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 They're interesting looking. Uh, but with his name on it, the, name, the vineyard, the vintage, just as regular, but uh, but it looks high tech now. And and also a, a, a lettering system or so. Or Really? I didn't know. No, like I had, how do you say, so you could tag it, you know, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you have a record of the bottle. Um, I don't know what it's called. So anyway, so then he he gives me the bottle, so I open it, and then I bring it Did over. Did an alarm go off? I know, I was expecting it. <laughs> the I secret saying, code? I really, I, I brought it back over to him. I'm like, are you sure I can this open this with beeping. the regular? What should I do? It's like you're getting the MacGyver thing. It's like, like cut the red wire. <laughs> like, back off, back off. Um, so then I, uh, I bring the bottle over him. I'm like, are you sure you can open this with a regular corkscrew? I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to get through this. He's like, yes, yes, I promise you. I said, okay, you're fine. Great. Uh, so then I open it, bring him back the bottle and pour it. It's his wine. So he tastes it. And he's and, like, this is disgusting. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, he, and then he said, he's like, wow, this is, you know, uh, I took the first sip of, of Montrachet in uh, the first bottle. You know, this is historic. He was sharing it with of, friends. Of so he was, history, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is the first bottle that was opened here. And uh, and he said, I had the first taste. And I looked at him and I said, actually, I had the first taste. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, he was funny. He was like, oh, okay. Was it good? I said, yeah, it was legit. It was good. Michelle Smith from Brooklyn Fair, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com that's i l l drink to that p o d.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating you can donate from anywhere using paypal or stripe on the show website remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app please that's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening <laughs>